It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. We're dedicating this episode today to talk about World Mental Health Day 2020, which is when we're recording this episode. And every year, World Mental Health Day is celebrated on October 10th. It was actually originally started uh, on in October of 1992, way back way back when, if anyone remembers, 92. <laughs> and uh, it was actually started by an organization called the World Federation for Mental Health. This is super interesting because as much as we, being Whitney and I, are super passionate about dedicating a big portion of This Might Get Uncomfortable, this podcast, our mission with our brand, Wellevator, to talking about holistic solutions and really open, vulnerable discussions about mental health. I'd never heard of this organization before. It was like, oh, cool. I didn't know there was this massive international organization. Their collective mission really in starting World Mental Health Day back in 92 that has continued is to really educate people about the breadth and the depth of our global mental health crisis. And I don't really necessarily use that word lightly, Whitney. You know, when we talk about a crisis, it seems like such a a heavy loaded word potentially to use that. But one of their missions is to really talk about the fact that about 450 million people around the world live with consistent mental health disorders and that these are among the leading causes of ill health and disability and mortality worldwide. So it's a big thing, you know, and I wanted to use this as a jump off point to talk about, I suppose, not necessarily to rehash a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. We've talked about Suicide Prevention Day. We've talked about both of our personal struggles with some mental health issues, whether it's body dysmorphia or anxiety, clinical depression, suicidal ideation. We really have talked at length in previous episodes, which we will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. If you haven't been to our website yet, dear listener, it's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We've got a ton of amazing resources there from free eBooks to courses, amazing blog posts, really all dedicated to looking at the wellness picture from all angles. And definitely mental health is one of those angles. But I was digging deeper, Whitney, because I knew today we were going to dedicate to this subject. And I found some really, really cool stuff that not only this organization is doing, but some other organizations, one of which, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, we visited at the Natural Products Expo, we visited uh, the Hope Hummus booth in the basement over at the Anaheim Convention Center. And I remember one of the coolest things, Whit, that they were doing was Hope Hummus was collaborating with an organization called Hope for the Day. And they had this whole campaign around really having more open conversations about you know, being proactive in our communities with mental health and breaking the silence, really breaking the stigma. And so I dug a little deeper into that wit and found that Hope for the Day just launched a really, really awesome collab with Demi Lovato and the DJ Marshmallow and Kevin Love. And Kevin Love is a basketball player for the Cleveland Cavaliers. We've mentioned him in previous episodes. And Wit, I just think it's just fucking cool that all of these celebrities are collabing with these organizations to not just increase the awareness, but do some really creative stuff around mental health. Have you seen any of this stuff? Have you heard the new song that I guess just came out like three days ago? I have not. Okay. It's really, it's a good song. And uh, apparently... They took the hashtag, the slogan that Hope for the Day put out a few years ago with Hope Hummus, which is hashtag, it's okay to not be okay. And so they did a song by that title called It's Okay Not to Be Okay. It's a really great music video. We'll link to that, the YouTube link in the show notes again at wellevator.com. It's a damn good song. It's fun and it's deep too. I remember a few years ago, Demi Lovato came out with her struggle with addiction and suicide. And uh, I think last year at the Grammys, she did one of the best performances I've ever seen at the Grammys. She sang this song and it was like, oh my God, like wrenching, heart-wrenchingly beautiful. So the cool thing about this wit, we'll link to this in the show notes too. It's an article on Billboard magazine. A couple of days ago, I mentioned Kevin Love, the NBA player, did an hour-long Q&A on Twitter with Demi Lovato and with Marshmallow. And they answered people's questions about their struggles with mental health, which I just thought was so just so cool that they did this, talking about rest and self-care and emotional health and how to handle this with their family. 
and there's a lot of really wonderful responses on this Twitter thread. So I feel like this is progressive on so many levels. It's not just, I don't know, you know, sometimes you see celebrities like taking up a cause and it doesn't feel authentic. You know, you're kind of like, oh, okay, they're just, I don't know, they're doing this to like present themselves in a good way for the public or, you know, they have a foundation that they're trying to funnel money to. But there's just something energetically, I think, about this mental health conversation that the athletes and leaders and celebrities and musicians that I see participating in this, I think it's because like they've had direct experience with mental health issues, depression, suicidal ideation, the things we mentioned. I don't know. It just feels more authentic to me when I see these type of conversations. And yeah, it's a really good song. It's a really cool Twitter thread. We'll link to all this in the show notes. But I was just super excited as I dug in around Mental Health Day. I was like, oh man, there's some really creative projects going on. And to kind of piggyback, I know I'm talking a lot, but I want to throw a bunch of stuff out there, Whitney. There's also some really cool resources coming out, which you and I have been discussing around the ethical use of responsible technology to support people's mental health. I don't know. I feel like I'm excited talking about this because there's so much going on I didn't know about. And it makes me want us, you and I, to think of really creative ways that you and I can contribute to this conversation. You know, I don't know what that is right now, but music is a really great touchstone. Music is a great jump off point. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm feeling like kind of giddy now. I was tired before we started. Now I'm like, yeah, this stuff is cool. <laughs> well, that also reminds me of a couple things. One is on the authenticity side of things when it comes to artists who are doing work based on their own struggles with mental health. One of them, of course, is Ryan Tedder, who started the company Mad Tasty, which is a line of CBD, sparkling water beverages. And uh, they, Mad Tasty, the company, started a, a series called the Mad Tasty Sessions, I think. And I'm one of the people involved with it. And that's really exciting because Mad Tasty is one of my favorite companies. I'm a big fan of CBD. And there's so many CBD companies out there that feel really trendy. And one of the things I like about Mad Tasty is that Ryan Tedder talks really openly about his struggles with anxiety and mental health and the stress of being in this huge band and being a really successful songwriter and producer and all the other roles he plays in the music industry. And it makes me think about how many people in that industry or any creative types are struggling with these things. And unless they speak out about it, we really don't know what they've been going through. And uh, I had mentioned in a recent episode how I watched the Paris Hilton documentary, and I felt kind of the same way about that. And I, I think it's very easy to think that successful people don't struggle, even though on, on some level we know that. If they don't talk about it authentically, it's really easy to just fall into this assumption that we're alone and that we're struggling because we're not as successful as them. Or if we were to get to that level of success, maybe we wouldn't struggle. And so going back to Mad Tasty, I kind of uh, didn't finish my thought about this project I did with them. They asked me to come on as somebody to speak about well-being. And I really tried to approach it from this aspect of daily well-being. And right now I'm actually finishing up a PDF about how to create a routine that can help you feel less anxious and stressed. And that was all inspired by this project that I did with them. So I will link to both of those in the show notes at wellevator.com so you can download them for free. So again, it's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. So with Mad Tasty, we did an Instagram TV video. So you can watch that. And I gave five tips for creating a well-being routine. And then I created a PDF offshoot of that that you can read and download for free. And then the other thing that this reminds me of is something actually that popped up in my email inbox today. And it's funny how we're starting this off talking about music artists. And I wonder what that correlation is. You know, I feel like that musicians seem to be a little bit more open about talking about these things. And I just wonder, does that mean that they're struggling with it more? Is there more pressure in the music industry? Or is that just what we're paying attention to? I don't know. But I got this email from this organization called Hip Hop Public Health. And they are trying to improve health literacy 
inspire behavior change and promote health equity. They're based in New York City. And this organization was founded in Harlem in 2006 with the mission to empower youth and families around the country and the globe with the knowledge and skills to make healthier choices, reducing preventable health conditions. And they've got this whole research team that helps them, and they work with socially conscious music artists and public health experts to create scalable, highly engaging, culturally relevant music in multimedia edutainment tools, as they call it. And it's kind of neat. They have people like Chuck D, DMC of Run DMC, Jordan Sparks, looks like Ariana Grande has been involved. And I bet you that's going to continue to grow. And I think it's just pretty neat. I don't think that their timing was specifically around World Mental Health Day. It actually seems like they're focused on other elements of health. But it all ties in together, right? Because sometimes our mental health makes it challenging to take care of our physical health and vice versa. Sometimes when we're really struggling physically, our mental and emotional health can kind of go by the wayside. So from a holistic approach, it's really important to be as educated as possible about all different elements of our health. Yeah, I love you brought up the holistic part of this wit because I think it's important to acknowledge that we can't address this just with a sort of myopic singular approach, you know, and I think sometimes I get a little bit frustrated when I see, and I know it's coming from a good place when people do this, but when they make suggestions on social media of what other people ought to do for their mental health, like, maybe you just need to go to therapy, maybe you just need a counselor, maybe you need to be on an antidepressant, but, you know, we're the first to admit neither Whitney or I are medical professionals. We are both people that are dedicated to research. We love reaching, you know, reading scholarly articles and researching this stuff and having both struggled with, again, like I said, anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia, all the things that we've talked about. I suppose it's one of those things where as we, I mean, not just Whitney and I, but we as individuals, to you as well, dear listener, it, it almost feels like when we make an approach to be more well or attempt to heal some of our personal issues. It's like the knowledge and the experience that we gain with those things enables us to assist others, right? Like that's how I feel about it is I don't feel, Whitney, like this conversation will ever be quote over with us really talking about all these issues because it's so layered. You know, you talked about physical health and mental health and how those are intertwined, but we also have to look at, you know, the economic realities of that we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's so many economic struggles and there's a greater divide between the wealthy and the poor and the stress that people are going through just trying to make ends meet. That contributes to mental health. Not having access to fresh, clean food in really inner city environments that are food deserts. One of the biggest things too that they talk about for World Mental Health Day is, is looking at how we can reform the healthcare system, right? Because so often when we get reform cuts or you know, money is taken out, I guess, of certain government programs, a lot of people are left extremely vulnerable. And when I say you the word vulnerable, not in a good way, right? Because they don't necessarily have the ability to afford $100 a session for a therapist if that's not subsidized by some government program. So this is such a, such a complicated discussion. You know, we cracked open this discussion for World Mental Health Day, but I guess one of the things I want to talk about too, Whitney, is this ongoing discussion of technology. You know, there's a lot of articles that have come out the past two years, like say since 2018 onward, about really cutting the bullshit with entrepreneurs and investors and VC people in startup companies. There's a lot of information about how a lot of entrepreneurs are either misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all with mental health issues. And it's an interesting thing, right? Because I feel like it takes a certain kind of personality to want to be an entrepreneur and want to run your own business because there's a shit ton of uncertainty. You're constantly like in sort of a feast or famine mode. And I don't know, sometimes I wonder if choosing to work for myself like the last 10, 11 years has made my mental health struggles worse. Do you ever think about that? Like, hey, there's all these advantages and there's great things that have come from us working for ourselves. You and I talk about that, but do you ever think like, I don't know, just the framework of entrepreneurship in general is not conducive to mental health, or is that too much of a sweeping generalization? I think it's actually more a issue of how entrepreneurship has been positioned. And I think about this quite often and been posting a lot on Instagram about this recently, because 
it certainly came up for me a lot during my road trip when I was listening to some audiobooks. Three in particular really stood out to me. And again, I just posted about this on Instagram today, these three books. One is called Do Nothing. One is called Stillness is the Key. And the third is called The Pursuit of Perfect. And I've been reading and studying about this for most of 2020. It's been a really big interest of mine. And I've talked a little bit about this program I've been working on called Beyond Measure that's really based around all of this. And and inspired by my struggles with the hustle culture, productivity, efficiency, perfectionism. And I think it's especially for millennials and younger generations or you know any generation around this time of self-discovery and kind of paving your own path. I think like people under 50 years old right now are very drawn to that. And I certainly don't mean to say it's it's a specifically age-related thing, but I've noticed it, especially with women in their 30s and younger and men as well. And I think because each of us have been developing our sense of selves and developing our careers around this time of social media. And with all this exposure that we have, we start to see so many other people that we can compare ourselves to and what they're doing and fall into the comparison trap and fall into that hustle culture. We actually have done a whole episode on hustle culture and it comes up often as a subject matter, but I definitely want to link to the episode that we did that was very focused on some of the hustle culture research. And I referenced a few articles that were really enlightening for me. So we'll link to that episode. I don't even remember the title or the date of when that came out, but I remember vividly discussing it. And uh, that will be linked as well as the books I just mentioned and everything else that we're mentioning today as resources for you at wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the podcast section and click on any of our episodes, including this one, there's a transcript for you. Plus, at the very end of every single show notes, a list of resources. And this one's going to have a a lot in there for you. But actually, I think most of our episodes have a lot of resources. And when we were talking about hustle culture, I was feeling, or I should say noticing how much I've been impacted by it. And again, like how... There's something about my age range that has really been impacted. There are also great books. We've talked about this one called Selfie that talked about this generation of how we were raised by our parents. And I think this long-winded answer to your question, Jason, is that our parents and our education system were really pushing us towards almost like an ego-based approach to our lives. And we simultaneously were very much about measurement and, and very much about like getting good grades in order to get into the right college because then maybe we would have a higher chance of getting a good job. And if we had the right job, then we can get enough money. And so for me, when I was studying film production and, and going into a career as a filmmaker, it was so much about all of that. In high school, I I was taught or told that if I wanted to be a successful filmmaker, my best chance of being that was to go to the right college, the right university. And so I tried my hardest to get the right grade so I could get accepted into those colleges. And I didn't get into the one I really wanted. So I went to another one, which ended up being great. And so much of that school was about kind of proving yourself and pushing yourself and not just being an artist, but like networking and finding that great job. And there was all this pressure when I moved to Los Angeles because I was finishing up my final semester of college. And it was all about like what internship you had. And if you got the right internship, then you'd get the right job. And if you just played your cards right, you could have this dream career. And so I hustled in that world for a long time and found myself feeling so unhappy because it wasn't about my passion for filmmaking. It was now this push to be really productive. So not only did I have a full-time job, I also eventually had a part-time job 
And in addition to both of those, I was trying to make short films on the side. So I was always trying to create, create, create and make money so I could pay my bills and then network while I was at these jobs and like figure out how to work my way through the industry. And it was exhausting. And then I started my work with Eco Vegan Gal and got very passionate about that. So I quit those jobs. And then it became about being an entrepreneur and trying to make money while doing this passion of mine, which was actually far less stressful, I think, in hindsight, Jason, because as hard as it is to run your own business, the reward has generally been worth it versus when I was working full-time and trying to hustle my way through this industry, that was really exhausting. But on the other hand, I will say that when I started Eco Vegan Gal, it was at the very early stages of what social media now is. As we've talked about before, especially in our recent episode about the Social Dilemma documentary, when I started Eco Vegan Gal in 2008, blogging was a thing, but social media wasn't really a thing. It was like slowly becoming a thing. And as I'm kind of getting my feet wet and creating this foundation in that world, everything started to change. So I I don't think I was really in the hustle culture mentality quite yet with my current career at that point, if that makes sense. I was kind of like coming out of the old version of the hustle culture that I had for the film industry and then moving slowly into a new version of hustle culture. And I think social media played a huge role because suddenly I'm seeing all of these other people doing what I'm doing. So there's this pressure to stay on top and be relevant. And that's relatively new as well, Jason. I mean, I'm curious about your experience as a chef. I do remember you and I having conversations about our contemporaries. And like there were only like a couple people we could think of years ago that felt like they were, quote, competition. They were that comparable to us. Like there was a couple people for me in like 2013. And it was like, oh, they're so similar to me. I have to like differentiate myself. But it probably wasn't until closer to 2015 that suddenly I'm seeing all these other people who are comparable to me. And I think I've spent the last five years feeling a mixture of all these feelings of comparison and then the desire not to compare myself. And then the desire to fit in versus the desire to stand out and be unique, you know? And that push and pull has been probably where the exhaustion has hit me. I don't think it's necessarily about the entrepreneurship, which is the short answer to your question after a long-winded response. It's a hard thing to answer, I think, for me, Whitney. I'll try and answer it, I guess, as succinctly as and clearly as I can. When I got out of culinary school in 2005, right? We had we had MySpace and then Facebook was in its infancy. I mean, it was an embryonic version of what it is now, the juggernaut it is now, but you know, this whole idea of becoming a celebrity chef. You know what's so funny? I remember right before I moved from Detroit to LA in 2005, I was watching the first season of the Food Network Star competition. And I remember that season was the year Guy Fieri won 15 years ago. He was the first season one winner of the next Food Network star, right? And now Guy Fieri's huge. I mean, he's a giganto brand. Whether you like him or not, you know, he's done very well for himself. But there were not the avenues and the portals and the mechanisms of becoming, quote, internet famous or becoming a celebrity, whatever, in this case, a chef, like there were back then. It was pretty much you know, you needed to write a best-selling cookbook or you needed to get a show on Food Network. Like that was it. But now we, you know, you go on and you look at any style of food, not just in our world with veganism, plant-based food. You look at keto, you look at paleo, you look at 80-10-10, you look at juicing, you look at detoxing, you look at barbecue, you look at pretty much damn near any style of cuisine or culinary art there are people that you could consider, quote, celebrities from their following online. And I think one of the things that I felt uh, motivated by, right, it was like when you and I started our YouTube channels, I started mine in 2009. There were very, very few people doing vegan recipes online, videos, right? Like actually putting out consistent video content. And I remember the people that I did watch back then 
respectfully, they bored the shit out of me. You know, it was like, I'd watch like, and this is how you make a tagliatelle. And like, I was like, this is boring. I want to make it fun and wacky and like be, do like kind of stand up comedy ish, like improv weirdness and just be myself and do recipes. But now I'll have people tag me. I don't remember what her name is, but there's another person who does like songs and improv and comedy with her recipes. And someone tagged me like a month ago. They're like, she's your female doppelganger. I'm like, I was doing this shit 12 years ago. Okay. Like I'm bored with it because there's so many people doing it now. And I don't feel like I have anything else to say, you know, after like whatever, 350 YouTube videos, a cookbook and a half and like all the stuff we've done. This is not an opportunity to like review our curriculum vitae or resumes here, but I think I'm burnt out, Whitney, because everybody and their grandma's doing it now, literally. And I'm like, oh, look, another vegan chef, another influencer, another person. Like back in 08, 09, it felt unique, right? I was excited because I didn't see anybody else doing it. Now it's like, I don't know. I hate to use the word saturated because I think that gets thrown around too much wit. But I think one of the reasons that I'm backing out of that industry is I just don't feel compelled to create in it anymore. Like, does the world need a 954th lasagna recipe? Like it's been done, you know? And I've had people say like, oh, but no one's doing it like you're doing it. I'm like, yes, they are. I was doing it before them, but now there's like, I don't know. I talk to our buddy Chad Sarno about this sometimes. I know I'm getting tangential right now, but you know, Chad's whole thing is like, yo, we've been doing this like way longer than most people in our industry. And then like someone comes in, they don't pay any dues. And then like a year later, they're huge. He's like, why? Like they didn't pay any of their dues. You know, they didn't, I don't know. It's a frustrating thing. I don't know. I'm done for now. It's just frustrating. (laughs) Well, the first thing is if we humble our egos, we can't possibly know if we were the first to do something. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And this whole idea of like overnight success is never true. And I think I've had to really get humble with that because I felt that way plenty of times. And, you know, Again, like getting my start back in 2008 and spending over 10 years doing this work and seeing other people who get a viral video on TikTok or Instagram or whatever, and suddenly it seems like they've got it all handed to them. But we don't know what's gone on in their lives before that, what's happened behind the scenes and what led them to that moment. There's just so many factors. And we also never know what will happen for us. And it doesn't serve us to sit too much in that feeling because coming back to mental health, like that alone can really affect our mental health. And those people are probably struggling with it too. I think the more that you see into other people's lives, as I mentioned, some of these celebrities earlier, like Ryan Tedder, or Paris Hilton, or Demi Lovato, like when these people open up about their struggles, it's, it's sometimes easy to be like, oh, boohoo, like, sucks to be you, you're super successful, and you're struggling with anxiety, you know, and we can get in that place of comparison. But the reality is they're trying to open up and show us that just because they have all of those things doesn't mean that they have these perfect lives. I think that that's part of what made the Paris Hilton documentary so interesting to me is she still is creating content that makes her look perfect, but simultaneously admitting that she's not. And I've noticed this about friends of mine as well, who have whatever level of influence, big or small, and they fall into that trap of wanting to present themselves a certain way but privately and behind the scenes admitting that they're really struggling. And yet there's a disconnect because they don't know how else to operate online. And I'm included in this too. I mean, it's re- every time I, I post something on Instagram these days, I don't know why Instagram is especially challenging. <laughs> I think it's because so many of us over the years have been trained that we will be rewarded if we do things a certain way. And yet, sometimes we will follow all the rules. We will do things the way that we think we're supposed to and still not get the results that we want. And we'll see other people getting those results by doing the same things. And sometimes it seems like the results are bigger than ours or faster than ours. Or as you're saying, 
we've paid all these dues and we don't see evidence that they've paid the dues. And so we feel resentful because they're getting things that we feel like we deserve before them. And I think that for our mental health, like that line of thinking is not helpful at all. And it can be incredibly detrimental. It leads us to a place of resentment, which to me is similar to hatred and anger. And it just kind of boils us. We end up, again, like feeling like, are we doing something wrong? Are we not good enough? Is someone better than us? Why are we missing out? We're being left behind. And a lot of those emotions remind me of things I experienced as a child, you know? And if we go back to our roots and connect with how we were feeling as kids when we felt less in control of our lives, I think maybe as adults, we assume that because we're older, we have more control. <laughs> but the reality is, many of us, I heard this actually in a book I was listening to recently, it might have been Stillness is the Key. I don't know. It's hard to keep track of everything I listen to. But one of the pieces of content I heard recently was saying how most of us are still operating as if we were seven years old. And I think like that envy and comparison and worthiness and resentment and frustration are just often similar to what we felt when we were out of control. And I think as adults, it doesn't make sense to us because we think we've done everything right. And if we still don't get what we want, we're kind of throwing emotional tantrums or falling into pits of despair. Yeah, I think I'm still prone at times to do that. You mentioned the word resentment. That's something I still struggle with, with my mental health, is the very egoic or... You know what it is? It's almost like it's so interesting you brought up control because it's like in school, I remember the feeling of if I just take these certain actions and I behave a certain way and I operate a certain way, I know that I'm going to get an A in this class. It's really interesting you bring this up because I feel like it's a microcosm of our youth and transposing that on our macro lives as adults as we get older, right? It's almost like not gaming the system, but I know that if I treat the teacher this way and I put this much work in and I uh, sit in the front of class and I'm proactive and I raise my hand and I'm engaging and I'm, I felt like a lot of the time, Whitney, it wasn't a guarantee so much as just a feeling of like, oh, okay, if I act this way, put in this much work, do these things, quote, play the game right, I know I'm probably going to succeed, right? And that formula was pretty repeatable in school. Like even in college, I remember specifically in this moment, like being in an advertising class, like a creative advertising class and looking around and going like, I'm going to crush this. Like all I need to do is this, 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 and this. But then you get to be an adult and not just in the workforce, but in this case, we're talking about entrepreneurship and you and I being creatives and being entrepreneurs. And this pattern for me, at least of remembering what it was like in my adolescence and my teens and twenties of, oh yeah, if I just do this, 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 and this, and I know I can like weigh the outcome in my favor, it ought to result in this thing that I want. And it's not true. Like I found that the frustration that I feel so interesting you bring this up is almost like an adolescent frustration of like this, well, this is bullshit because I did all the things as you mentioned, and the result ought to be this. It's almost like deep programming that part of my brain that thinks or expects, expects rather that if I just do things a certain way or make these connections or play the game right or put this level of hard work in and try and outwork everyone, that was another thing too, right? Is like breaking that stigma, which we've talked about here. Of I remember as a kid in school remembering like whether it was the track team or whatever class was like, oh, if I just outwork everyone, I'll do better than them. And that most of the time worked. But now it's like, oh, I'm looking around in this feeling of resentment of like, I outworked you guys. I've been in the game longer. I've been doing more. Why are you more successful than me? This is bullshit, right? So it is deprogramming that part of me that wants to feel the resentment of like, but I outworked you and I did more than you and I've been in this years longer. Why am I not getting the results? It's still a thing I struggle with. I haven't fully shed myself of that emotional reaction sometimes. It's still, I don't know. I still have trouble diffusing it and I'm glad you brought it up because it gets me to reflect on this thing yeah, of like a formula or a system from my youth that I sometimes think ought to work as an adult and it doesn't. Well, I think this ties back into these artists and celebrity figures we've talked about throughout this episode 
who are probably experiencing very similar emotions as you, Jason, but just on a different level or their own version of it. You know, imagine the pressure that someone like Demi Lovato has felt throughout her life and being a childhood star and having all of these people that adore her and are waiting for her. And then she has record labels and all these other people in her life that are pressuring her to get things done and put out the next album. When's the next song? And when are you going to do this performance? And how do you look? And she's talked a lot about her body image struggles and that whole industry pressuring women to be small and pretty. And that is so intense. I can relate to that, but but I'm not at that place where I'm experiencing that quite so intensely, I suppose. And I imagine, you know, as I talked about Ryan Tedder, he described how his anxiety was so bad for their last album that came out in 2016. He could barely promote it because he was feeling so much anxiety. And imagine the pressure of a record label, like you have a new album and you're touring the world and like you're experiencing that every day and you've you know, millions of fans and and you're all this money is on the line. I mean, that's really intense. And then you have to psychologically push yourself through it because it feels like a matter of yourself or your career, you know? And also with Paris Hilton, the other example I provided, she basically says in that, well, she directly says in that documentary that she wouldn't feel satisfied until she made a billion dollars. And the documentary filmmaker asked her, well, why do you need to get there? And she said, well, I think that's what's going to make me happy. And then she talked about how she used to feel that way about making a million or millions. I forget the exact number, but she reached whatever financial level of success she wanted, still didn't feel happy and thought to herself, well, maybe I just need to make more. And it's actually kind of a cliche thing. I think we all experience that in different levels. Like if we will only get to this place with our careers, then we will feel satisfied. Or we feel so much external pressure from the media or people around us or self-imposed pressure that's been integrated into our minds for all these years that we just feel so overwhelmed by it all. It's hard to even operate, you know? And I think that's just a universal thing. And the more that we can discuss it, the more relief I think we can feel in at least knowing that we're not alone and it's not about achieving something. And even with those achievements, the other side is that that can actually make us feel worse because there's so much pressure that comes along with different levels of success. And you know, there's data that says people are happiest when they hit, I think it's like $95,000. I forget the exact amount. It's, I'm pretty sure it's under $100,000 a year that they found you will not be any happier if you make more than this amount of money. And I wish that more people would talk about that. I think it's an ongoing subject matter for us here on the podcast because it's important to discuss. And even for us, we can discuss it every single day and still struggle with it. It's not that saying these things out loud makes it any easier. It's just continuing that awareness and trying to retrain yourself and unlearn all of these different elements of hustle culture and the addiction to productivity and the addiction to efficiency and the addiction to success and metrics and measurements and knowing that none of those things will bring us happiness. You mentioned that article, Wit, and uh, I wanted to link to it. I want, we will link to it. <laughs> That's a better way of saying it in the show notes. It was a study that came out in Nature and Human Behavior. We'll link to it. It's a link from nature.com. They did a study, a worldwide Gallup poll with a sample. This is fascinating. 1.7 million individuals. And it was 95,000, which was a global income satiation point. It said 95,000 for life evaluation. And between sixty and seventy-five thousand, this is annual income for emotional well-being. But there's substantial variation depending on where you are on the planet. So it's a pretty long article. It's a pretty geeky science article, actually. But they found that in North America specifically, it's one hundred and five thousand, and that in other parts of the world, like the Caribbean, is thirty-five thousand. 
and it's 125,000 in New Zealand. And the author of this, uh, Andrew Jeb, said there's a certain point where your money seems to bring no more benefits to your well-being in terms of both your feelings and your self-evaluation. So it's interesting, right? Because like without getting you know too much into like what I've earned over the years, I remember this idea that once I crossed a certain income threshold, like you would talk about Paris Hilton, like I had my version of that. Like once I get to this number and that's my, you know, adjusted gross income for the year, then I'll have quote made it, whatever the fuck that means. But then I remember one year I passed that threshold by a significant margin. And then it was right around the time this study came out. And I remember thinking about that year and I thought to myself, was I any exponentially more joyful, fulfilled, happy, powerful, in control? And if I think about that one, like the year that I earned the most money so far in my life, I wasn't. I wasn't exponentially happier. It wasn't like, oh my God, this is the most joy and happiness and fulfillment and power I've ever felt in my life. It legit kind of felt like the year before that. And the year, in terms of my baseline contentment, my baseline fulfillment, you know? And so then, then my mind, though, to piggyback on what you said, well, maybe you didn't make enough. Maybe you need to double that, right? And it gets into, I guess, the trap, if you will, of the mentality of people like, and I'm not throwing him under the bus, but like Grant Cardone, he's in that kind of Tony Robbins, Brandon Burchard, whatever category where he's like 10x everything, 10x, that's his thing, 10x, 10x, 10x. It was like, oh, hey, yo, if you made a hundred grand, 10x it, you got to go to a million. If you made a million, you got to 10x it, go to 10 million. It's like, okay. But I remember after that experience, I think this was like two or three years ago when I hit this mark, I was like, but why? Like why? I needed to sit with myself and say like, why? Because there was a part of me that's like, yeah, you need to 10x your life, dude. Why be satisfied with this? Go for more. And I feel like that there, there's a trap in this mentality sometimes of like, don't just be satisfied where you're at keep striving for more, which on one hand, yeah, like constant self-improvement and self-growth is is cool. But I think we need to be a lot more self-aware of why we want it. Like why is there this almost unquenchable desire to grow and succeed at all costs? Like this isn't enough. I need to achieve more. I haven't scaled my personal Everest yet. All those cliches. Like I'm still sitting with this wit of like, what am I actually motivated by in life? Is it like constant, never-ending growth and improvement? Or is it okay at certain points in my life, right, to sit back and go, this is good. Like, I'm good with this. And then, you know, you hear the cacophony of voices like, oh, you shouldn't settle. You're like, you got too comfortable. Like, I'm curious how you feel about that balance between like, this is good and I'm comfortable here. And I don't mean comfortable in a bad way. Like, this, I'm good versus, nah, but there's another level, bro. You got to go to another level. Well, again, I think that that is a huge part of the capitalistic hustle culture. And there's nothing wrong with it, except that it could be really detrimental for your mental health and, and completely burn you out. So I guess if you consider that wrong, then perhaps there is something wrong with it. But a lot of us in the entrepreneurship world have been hit over the head with that messaging. I mean, I remember when I quit my last full-time job in 2010, one of the first thing I did was read Gary V's book about social media. It was called Crush It, I think. And a friend had given it to me that was really into Gary V's work. And I read it and I was like, yeah, I'm going to crush it. I'm going to be everywhere. I'm going to be on every social media platform. And I was for a while. You know, I was I was churning out YouTube videos and blog posts and all different social media posts for many years to the point where now people often ask me where I am because I'm not doing that anymore. And so they're used to me hustling so much. And then I got really into people like Brendan Burchard. And, and frankly, recently, Jason, I've been thinking, I don't know if I feel in alignment with him anymore, which feels weird to say because I was a very gung-ho Brenda Burchard fan, for lack of a better word, follower, whatever you want to call it. And I've been examining my emotional reaction to his newsletters, for example, and I never want to read them because they feel like a constant pressure to hustle. And like you're saying, this 
well, you know, I remember he was one of those people. Well, I think, I hope I'm, I'm not wrong in saying this. I could be, but I'm fairly certain that he was one of those people that would say things like, well, if you don't do this by the end of quarantine, then you're wasting your time. You know, there was a number of people that were saying like, if you're not going to use this quote, extra time you have to hustle and get projects done, then what are you doing with your life? And I think he actually backtracked from that after a little while, because I think many of us were thinking that COVID would be a short-term problem and that quarantine would not last very long or or this physical distancing that we've been doing and the working from home, all of that was going to be short-lived. And now here we are in September and not much has changed yet. We might not technically be in quarantine anymore, but most of us are still working from home. Most of us are still physically distancing ourselves and we're not back to what life was like previous to this and we may never be. And I think there was this desire at the very beginning of all of that to utilize this perceived extra time to get things done. But many of us were simultaneously feeling exhausted. I mean, that's certainly how I felt in March and April. I All I wanted to do was sleep and rest. And I was feeling like I was kind of getting cultural permission to not work as hard and to take good care of my health. And then hearing those messages from people like Brendan, and again, I could be wrong. He might not have been the, one of the people saying these things. So I don't mean to throw Brendan under the bus. It's just my perception of him, whether I'm lumping him into some category or not. It just felt like people like him were saying so much of these things that I wanted to distance myself from them. And I remember feeling that way even previous to COVID impacting the United States in January 2020 of this year. I was starting to feel really burned out and I was starting to wish I had more time and I was starting to wish I had permission to slow down. And I think that was part of what I was experiencing in March and April was like, oh, okay, everybody's slowing down right now. It's okay for me to do that too. And raising my awareness about that and noticing how I have been so conditioned to go, go, go and hustle all the time and take advantage of every moment. And this is one of the big messages, if not the crucial message of that book, Stillness is the Key, which I have not finished yet. And one of the things that you were saying, Jason, reminded me of a, a section of that book where Ryan Holiday is talking about Tiger Woods and how, again, he's a great example. Like when you hear what this man went through in his life, it's kind of shocking because so many of us just perceived him as this phenomenal athlete. And then he kind of like, went through a crazy experience and suddenly he's somebody we never thought he was. I don't keep up with him enough to know that much. So I'm listening to this book and hearing about his childhood and how hard his dad pushed him and how his dad set an example of kind of being a womanizer. And I think he was drinking a lot or doing a lot of drugs, something like that. And simultaneously really, really pushing his son to be an extraordinary athlete, but in, in such an extreme way where they would constantly be working on Tiger's craft, they had to develop a safety word that Tiger could say when he was being pushed too hard and his word was enough. So he would have to say to his dad enough in order to be like, What's what's that phrase like when you're you're playing around and you tag out or whatever it is, Jason? There's another word for it. Like it's typically equated to boys. Like oh, I've I'm tapping out, but there's another word for it. I don't know. I was just thinking about my mind went to sex of uh, of having a safe <laughs> word during sex. Sure. But yeah, tapping out is kind of the colloquial phrase of like okay. I think it came from like MMA or fighting sports of like when you give up, you literally tap the mat. Right. Or surrendering or whatever. Like uh -huh. I guess that was the word that he would use in those moments. Tiger Woods would try so hard not to say that word that it became the E word. Like if he were to say I'm enough, that would be admitting or if he would say the word enough, that would be admitting defeat, admitting weakness. And so it became a really negative word in his mind. And then Ryan Holiday, the author of this book, is saying how 
so many of us struggle with that word enough. We don't feel enough. Nothing ever feels good enough. We don't have enough time. There's so much of this scarcity and lack mentality. And I find myself in that trap often. Today, I was reflecting on it. I'm like, oh my gosh, where did the day go? I had all these plans. I had all these things I wanted to accomplish. And suddenly I feel like I was able to do like partially accomplish one of those things. You know, I'm sitting here feeling like a failure. And that in itself is the hustle culture, is the productivity and efficiency addiction that we have. That if we don't get all of this stuff done in a certain timeline, then we're failures and we're not good enough and we're weak and we're tapping out. And I think that's a huge problem. And also to tie it back into the inspiration for this conversation, this is a huge aspect of mental health. And I think people are waking up to this very slowly. And there's probably going to be a huge movement around this over time. You know, we talked about this a bit discussing the social dilemma documentary. I think there's going to be a big movement of people going off of social media, limiting social media, putting more boundaries on their phone through the apps that you can use or getting phones like the one light. Is it called the light phone, Jason? Yeah, they have the light phone two model that is out now. Yeah, that's the one. I think that's going to become a very common thing or (laughs) it could get worse and it might be both. It might be a big trend of people going offline and being more minimal. We've seen the minimalism trend rise a lot. We see a lot of people learning from these things and disconnecting. But I think we are also seeing in the youth, there's a major addiction to social media, of course, for younger generations. And there's also the continuous addiction to this hustle culture, the measurements, the productivity and the efficiency. So it might be kind of like the two worlds colliding at a certain point or operating simultaneously where a lot of people are doing one or the other. You know what I mean? I don't know if one's going to overpower the other, to be honest. It's really hard to tell right now. I wanted to loop back with you were riffing so much on not just Brendan, but I guess sort of the tentacles of toxic capitalism, which is a subject we continue to talk a lot about because the more that I learn about I suppose some of these subtle subconscious motivations of how capitalism operates, at least the context of what we talk about as toxic capitalism, which is not really a humanistic approach that honors the individual, honors their health, honors their mental health, honors rest, provides equal pay to women and minorities. I mean, there's a million different tentacles of this conversation, but you talked about this, you know, this idea, and it was Brendan, by the way, who was talking about if you don't spend this time maximizing the opportunity of quarantine, you're wasting your time. He actually did get, get those emails from him. And some other people kind of echoed that. But I like Brendan for many, many reasons. But like you, I don't really resonate with his messaging right now. But you know, what are the antidotes to this hustle culture? What are the antidotes to some of the aspects of toxic capitalism? That is, you know, profit and continued growth at all costs at the expense of human health. You know, this article on TechCrunch about entrepreneurs and addressing the mental health crisis specifically with entrepreneurs talked about that overall close to 20% of Americans will be diagnosed and suffer with some form of mental illness. But, you know, we go deeper into entrepreneurs. There was a really interesting study that a guy named Michael Freeman did and he found in the study that entrepreneurs are 50% more likely to report having mental health conditions and that people who found like founders people who start up companies actually not just employees but people who are actually the founders or CEOs in the study were two times more likely to suffer from depression six times more likely to suffer from ADHD and attendant symptoms three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse ready this is mind blowing this next one 10 times more likely to suffer from bipolar disorder, twice as likely to have some sort of psychiatric hospitalization, and two times higher the amount of suicidal thoughts. And their whole position with this article is like, look, it's kind of a catastrophe that's happening with entrepreneurship that no one's talking about in the mainstream. And that, you know, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs, and especially in the tech industry, 
like it's through blood, sweat, and tears and passion and effort and working, you know, 16 hour days that like you either succeed or fail. And, you know, in some of these, there's like you said earlier, Whitney, with artists, you know, there's billions of dollars at stake. We talked way in the beginning of this podcast about some articles about Elon Musk's work ethic, you know, and how he was like, yeah, I sleep at the end of the assembly line and I'm working 18 hour days and I sleep like three hours a night. And, and I remember some people being like, wow, Elon, what a hero. I want to emulate him. And my reaction was like, man, we celebrate, we as a society are like, look at this amazing genius person and they're sleeping on the assembly line and they're only sleeping three hours a night, you know, and they're on Xanax and they're taking uppers and they're on all these drugs and they're, but look how successful they are. And now Elon Musk is the third richest human on the planet. So wasn't it all worth it? It's a tough question to answer, isn't it? Because I don't want to single out Elon, but I remember all people like freaking out about his work ethic and when he described his day and some people aspiring to do it. And it's like, again, why? Like, is it because you want to be one of the richest people on the planet? Do you want to have a business that is trying to scale as much as Tesla? I'm not saying anything's right or wrong here, Wit. We're both fans of Elon, but you wonder what he's given up in terms of his personal health. You wonder what he's given up in terms of his relationships. You wonder what he's given up in terms of human connection to get to where he's at. And I think that there has to be trade-offs somewhere along the line. I don't know that it's possible to work that hard and achieve that level of financial, material, corporate success without letting other areas of your life fall away. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think life is so much about your choice and what you decide to do with it. And there's a lot of pressure because I think it's all wrapped up in the ego. It's other people's egos and our own our own egos about what's right or wrong, what's good or bad. And it comes back to this black and white outlook on life. And it makes us feel good to believe that we're doing the right things and believing the right things. But then if we get into conflict with what other people's belief, when we get into conflict with what other people believe about the right or wrong way to go about life, like for example, if if we're so busy hustling all the time and then someone like us comes along and says, hustle culture is bad for you, that can cause that conflict where either you're going to defend what you're doing and why it's the right way and or you feel awful and you think, oh my gosh, I've been doing it wrong all this time and I'm such a failure and I messed up. And then if you're feeling the latter, you can either sulk in that and get really and feel that defeat or you can start to shift and maybe try out a different way of living and see if it works for you but even when you get there you may discover it doesn't feel 100% right i think a lot about this in terms of parenting and as a woman with the quote clock ticking trying to decide, will I ever become a mother one day? And I observe my friends who are mothers. And honestly, it seems really hard. <laughs> like Being a mom, I, there's a lot of sides of it that I'm not sure I want to do. And there are some sides of it that sound really wonderful, but I just don't know if, if that's the right path for me. And I might decide not to be a mother and then regret it later on. I might decide to be a mother and regret that too. You know, I don't know. And I guess that decision reminds me that there's just no right or wrong. There is no path that's going to be easier than another. And if I did decide to be a mom, that might, quote, take me away from my work. That might make it harder to work. I think that's one of the downsides of it, in my opinion, is that, oh, well, what would it do to my career? Because most of my friends that are moms just don't seem to have any time left for their career or the time that they do have is very limited and changed. And I already feel like I don't have, quote, enough time, you know, I can imagine bringing a child into this world and wanting to be present with that child. And even really mindful parents, I know, still feel like they're not present enough with their kids. And so I think it does come down to that feeling of enoughness. At the end of the day, like we may never feel like we have enough time, no matter what our circumstances are. Going back to my hopes at the beginning of 2020 of like, oh, if only I could just pause for a little while, if only I had a week to get things done. And then 
then were put into quarantine. Suddenly I did have all that extra time, but I didn't do all of the things that people like Brendan Burchard were encouraging me to do because I wanted to sleep. (laughs) And I felt that way today too. When I woke up, I woke up later than I would have liked to. And I jumped into the day and started thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have enough time. But the truth is I needed that sleep, right? So something has to give at a certain point. And I don't know if my day would have been any more satisfying if I had woken up earlier. (laughs) I probably still wouldn't have felt like I had enough time. And so I think if we can come to this awareness of it's never going to feel enough. And so maybe life is enough, regardless of that, of whether we perceive it as being enough or not. Does that make sense? Like it's kind of like the enoughness is there. We're inherently enough. We're inherently worthy as human beings. We don't need to measure ourselves based on our productivity and what we accomplish, how much money we make and how many followers we have and what our bodies look like. All of these things that we do that stress us out so much and wreak havoc on our mental health. If we could just step back and say, none of that really matters anyways, if I can just force myself to feel enough, maybe I will believe it. I think there's a huge amount of power in power. Is that the right word? Liberation is a better word. For me, I think there's a huge amount of like mental and psychic space that's created, like almost like a Oh, like a liberation, an openness when I stop giving my power away to things that I think are going to define me. You know, like we've had previous episodes. We always reference previous episodes because we've covered just so much ground here that, you know, we had an earlier episode about bridges and walls and titles and labels. And if I diffuse the idea that I need this thing, I need a certain amount of money, I need a title, I need a certain number of followers. Like, I need this thing. I need it. I need it. I need it. I know for myself that if I come to a place, Whitney, of I'm okay whether I get it or not, the level of relaxation, the level of ease I feel like when I'm in that space, whatever the thing is does come, I'm able to enjoy it more because I'm not like gritting my teeth on a white knuckled ride trying to like zoom toward the goal. But also, if it doesn't manifest or come the way that I want it to, then it's like, cool, I'm, it's like I'm okay either way. Whether or not this thing that I want happens, I'm okay either way. And for me, it's been undoing the programming of, no, 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 like fight to the end, get the thing, like no matter what, you know, that thing you want, like don't stop till you get it. But there's been a lot of things in my life that... I feel like I've been really fortunate and I'm grateful to have received and there's other dreams that didn't come true and may never come true. And it's like, if I sit with it, I'm okay either way. And I feel like that level of freedom and power is really that I aim to try and be in that space with. It doesn't mean that I don't have a preference, right? It doesn't mean we strip away our preference. It doesn't mean we strip away our desire But it's like whether or not this thing happens or it, quote, works out, like I know I'm going to be okay either way. I feel like I want to cultivate being in that space more in my life because it feels so relaxed and so good when I'm there. It's an ongoing journey, isn't it? I mean, to you, listener, how you're feeling about what we're digging into with this, we always love to hear from you, whether it's comments on our blog posts and our show notes or whether it's you sending us direct messages or, or emails. We always enjoy getting feedback from you, whether it's your mental health journey, whether it's your perspectives on self-care, or if you're an entrepreneur or an artist who maybe has been struggling with your mental health. With these kind of episodes in particular, I always love hearing any kind of feedback you may have. And if you want to give us any feedback, you can do so on any of our social media channels. On all of the major ones, we're at Wellevator. Again, it's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. Our direct email is hello at wellevator.com. We are checking it. We do not have a robot or AI checking those emails. It is Whitney and myself responding to you directly. And one of the things we love too is if there's a particular topic or something you feel really passionate about that you want us to jump into, we've done several episodes from suggestions we've received through email or direct message. So if you're a longtime listener or it's your very first episode, if there's something that is burning in your mind and your heart you want us to discuss. We're always open to those suggestions. And I think this is an ongoing discussion. Obviously, as we said at the very beginning of this episode, mental health is such a nuanced, complicated, and individualistic journey of physical, chemical, biological, genetic, 
societal, financial. I mean, this is such a deep, complex journey of mental health that we certainly feel passionate about continuing to discuss and explore this for not only ourselves, but as we've done here on this episode, sharing whatever resources that we have for you to help you with your mental health journey. So for all the articles, all the studies, all the research that we mentioned today, all the music videos, everything we did, you'll find that all in our show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can click on the podcast section. It'll take you directly to the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes of This Might Get Uncomfortable, along with some really cool free resources from eBooks to audio courses to some video guidance. We've got some really, really cool things we would love for you to explore for free on our website to help you on your wellness journey. So I know that this discussion, Whitney, is certainly not over with. It's never really over, but we hope that we shared with you, dear listeners, some cool new resources for you to help and assist you on your journey. So until next time, actually, in an upcoming episode, Whitney, I want to give a little sneak preview. I actually want one of our future episodes to talk about dreams and dream interpretation and the subconscious and how that relates to mental health. I have some new insights and things to talk about the dream world and what it means for us as human beings. So stay tuned for that, dear listener. That's an upcoming episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. And we have some really fantastic guests coming up talking about social media, talking about parenthood, talking about mental health. We, we just have so much goodness to share with you. So stay tuned and we'll catch you with another episode soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.